everyone, and welcome to This Mom Loves. I'm Kate Wynn, a mom, teacher, blogger, freelance writer, TV guest, and podcaster. Today on the show, I'm going to be recommending a great suspense novel, talking about my thoughts regarding the new Netflix series, Tidying with Marie Kondo, and my very special guest is family doctor, Dr. Sheila Wajay-Singha, and she's answering a pile of listener questions all about women's health. You definitely don't want to miss that. Kicking off the show, a book recommendation, The Perfect Girlfriend by Karen Hamilton. So this is a suspense novel right in that whole genre that people seem to be loving these days. And it's funny, I saw one review where someone said, oh, this book has been done. There's so many books like this. But I actually did find it a little bit different. So it's suspense, nothing gory, just more the psychological thriller kind of thing. And it's a different format because you're really not sure if you like the protagonist, Juliet, um, or whether you hate her, but you love to hate her and you want to find out what's going to happen in the book. So in in the plot, she's scheming to win back her ex. It's very twisted. She has actually become a flight attendant to be closer to him as he's a pilot. Um, I really enjoyed it. I wanted to keep reading it every day, which is always the sign of a good book when you want to get back at it. And just as a little side um, side education, I actually learned a ton about the job of being a flight attendant. I really didn't know about it, and I don't think I've ever read a book where there's a character who's a flight attendant who talks about their work so much. So a lot of the terminology and the way their scheduling works and things like that, uh, it was all new to me, and I found it interesting. And I'm assuming it's accurate information because the author actually used to be a flight attendant. So it's her uh, her area of expertise. But if you are looking for uh, for a good novel and you're into suspense, I would definitely recommend The Perfect Girlfriend by Karen Hamilton. If you're on the hunt for any other books as well, I am going to link in the show notes today to the list that I did of my favorite books from the last year. There are 40 or maybe even 41 books on that list with links for information or to purchase if you're interested in them. Tons of the suspense genre, lots of regular fiction as well, and a pile of my favorite nonfiction too, because I do like to read a lot of nonfiction. So that will be uh, in the show notes at thismumloves.ca slash podcasts. And you just click on episode 16 for that information. If you are looking for me on social media, I would love to be found. I am on Twitter and Facebook at thismumloves on Instagram at Kate This Mom Loves, and you can find me on my website, thismomloves.ca. Next, I want to share my opinions about the Netflix series Tidying with Marie Kondo. So this uh, Japanese organization expert is not new to me. I actually reviewed her book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, back in 2016. Things that I love about her, I love her ruthlessness when it comes to getting rid of things. A lot of people who want to get organized, the problem is they have too much stuff. This might be you. So whether it's you keep too many too many items of clothing, maybe it's an office situation, whatever the case may be, too much stuff. So it's really not about heading to the container store and getting all the sorts of little cute organizers. Even if you're doing your closet, don't start by buying the beautiful hangers. Start by getting rid of stuff. And not in an irresponsible way. I mean, find a place where you can donate good items. Garbage is garbage. Recycling is recycling. But if you have items that are still fine, but they're not right for you, find a place where you can donate them so it doesn't feel wasteful and you don't have to feel guilty about that. Sorry, that's just my little tangent there. But I totally agree with Marie Kondo about purging the stuff. There are a lot of things that that don't really fit my style of organization. Um, like I don't necessarily do her order um, the way she does things. 
I do like more of a room by room, which she doesn't recommend. But for example, she thinks you should put all your clothing together in order to fully, um, fully purge and then organize it. Well, for me, all my clothing is in my bedroom closet. I mean, I keep coats, like outerwear somewhere else, but I feel like when I get to the closet, I'll do outerwear. I don't need to bring all my coats in when I'm doing my closet in my bedroom. So my things are already kind of in the right room. So I feel like room by room works for me, but she has her, uh, her whole own method. And I mean, I'm Catholic, so the spiritual elements of what she does don't really work for me. I mean, I would never, you know, get down and introduce myself to a home or anything like that. Or even when she goes to start sorting books, she'll tap on the piles to wake them up. I'm not really into the whole communing with inanimate objects like that. I certainly would uh, would be happy to say a prayer before starting a good organization session. And also, instead of actually thanking an object for what it's done for you as you get rid of it, if that doesn't feel right, you might just want to thank God or be grateful for um, for what you've had and and what you've been able to experience with that item. So, I mean, you don't necessarily have to embrace the, the spiritual side of her cleaning. And there have been so many people online just up in arms about the fact that she's telling people to get rid of their books. Really, she's only telling people to get rid of books that don't spark joy or that don't kind of take you forward to the person that you want to be. So don't get rid of any books that you don't want to get rid of. She's she's not the type to force that upon anybody. Um, And I've always been the type too. I mean, my own bookshelf, personal bookshelf is quite bare because I use the library a lot. I'm lucky to say I get a lot of review copies of things. I do a lot of ebook reading now as well on the Kindle. I love that. Um, And I also just like to share books. Like when I get free books sent to me or even when I buy books, I get them as gifts. I read them, I enjoy them, and I like to keep them in circulation with other people. I feel like for me, that feels better than having them sitting there on the shelf. So But what you do with your book collection or any of your objects is totally up to you. In terms of the show itself, I enjoy it. I mean, yes, it's a little bit cheesy, but for me, I think it's fun to watch these people doing their organization. You always learn new little tips about things. And I actually watched the show with my girls who are 12 and 10. And one day when I was out, Eva actually took it upon herself. She's the 10-year-old. Um, to take everything out of her dresser, all of her clothing, and organize it. And we had just done that um, before Christmas time. Right now, as I as I record this, it's getting closer to February. But um, that meant she didn't have a whole lot to get rid of, but she did sort of sort and organize and fold things more neatly and put them in the right drawers. And she was very proud of herself for, uh, for uh, using the KonMari method in her dresser. So if you can get your kids on board with that, uh, all the better. So it's a fun show if it's the kind of thing that appeals to you, watching other people organize and tidy. And it's not hoarders. It's not people who, you know, almost have a disorder about collecting stuff. There's a, a almost something else that's going on there that they need some help with, not just the physical organization and purging. This is just your typical families, your typical couples. Um, there's one, one woman who's a widow cleaning things out after her husband has died, all sorts of different family circumstances, but, uh, but I definitely recommend it. Tidying with Marie Kondo on Netflix. I'm really pleased to welcome my special guest today, Dr. Sheila Wajayasinghe. She is a family doctor at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, also the medical director of the Immigrant Women's Health Centre. She's a regular guest on The Social. We actually met in person when um, Melissa Leong, the finance expert, arranged a luncheon. So I got to meet Dr. Sheila in real life. And she's the mom to baby girl Layla as well. And she is here to answer all of your medical questions. Welcome, Dr. Sheila. Thank you so much for having me. 
So I have a pile of questions for you here today. A lot of them were sent in by listeners through social media. I've got a couple of my own kind of weaved in, but we're not going to use any names anywhere so that no one is identified and you can uh, kind of help us with your medical expertise. So I'm just going to jump right in with the first question. How often should women be seeing a doctor for checkups? I know, for example, guidelines in terms of cervical cancer, cancer screening have changed. So how often should those checkups be? That's a really interesting question because checkups have fallen out of favor in a way um, for a lot of people, which is very confusing because we grew up knowing that we were supposed to see a doctor once a year, have a checkup, have our blood pressure checked, have our heart listened to. Um, but the guidelines have changed in that the value of checkups has has shifted to show that it doesn't necessarily mean better health outcomes. Um, and so what we do instead is make sure that people are up to date for their preventative screening uh, tests. So the preventative screening tests specifically are cervical cancer screening with pap testing, mammograms for breast cancer screening, and colorectal cancer screening. Um, and generally in terms of having a visit every year with your doctor, that's not necessary. Um, but if you have a medical condition that you might need to have checked up regularly, that's a different reason to see your doctor. So in general, what I suggest is if you're you know, between the age 20 to 40 or 50 based on your risk factors, it's good to check in with your doctor every two to three years. Okay. Um, after that point, it, it depends on your other risk factors that you have. And even before that point, it depends on your risk factors. So if you have a family history of high blood pressure or diabetes or heart disease, you may want to check in a little bit earlier or more regularly um, or cancer as well. That's another reason to check in more earlier than, than every two years. Um, when it comes to specific tests that you should be having in terms of the checkup, so pap tests in the past were every year. But now in, in Ontario and most provinces, um, pap tests are done every three years if your paps have always been normal, starting at the age of 21, regardless of when you begin to be sexually active. So starting from 21 to age 70, we do paps every three years. Now, if you've had an abnormal pap test in the past or any procedure done on the cervix, you may have a more frequent screening um, period. So it might be every year instead of every three years. And that's a conversation to have with your own doctor. Um, mammograms, we start doing at age 50 for people who don't have any other risk factors. And when I say that, it means like if you have a risk factor um, of a strong family history of breast cancer, you may start screening earlier, like at age 40. Um, but if you have no risk factors, the general in the general population, we start screening for breast cancer with mammograms at age 50. And we do that every one to two years. Okay. For colon, yeah, and is that and then colorectal cancer screening also begins, and that's a big one that's missed. And our screening rates are actually quite low for this, um, and it's because we don't talk about it enough. So I'm really glad that we're able to discuss it today. But colon cancer, if found early, before it becomes symptomatic, and that's the key thing about screening. Screening is to pick up diseases before they become symptomatic. Because if you have symptoms, it's not screening anymore. It's actually looking for a diagnosis. But screening for colon cancer is our pickup rate for that is very low in that people aren't doing it as often as, as we should be. But at age 50, we should start. And there's two ways of doing colon cancer screening. One is um, a fecal occult blood test where you take home a kit and you collect a sample from at home uh, and then you mail in your sample. And that's done every two years or colonoscopy, which we do every five to 10 years, depending on what they find. Okay. That's very good to know. Thank you. What are some of the best ways that women can keep themselves healthy between these doctor's visits? So um, 
Yeah, I mean, generally the, the, the best things to do between those visits are to keep physically active. Um, generally, if we can keep about 30 minutes a day, five days a week, if it's possible. Um, and a lot of people, especially moms, will tell me, they'll say, you know, I exercise because I'm running after my kids all day. Um, and it is hard to fit that into a schedule. But if you can get out and do a walk, um, do something just for yourself, um, getting regular exercise, um, managing your diet, so looking at what you're eating, um, there's a lot of great resources out there for um, nutrition resources online that are free. Um, there's, uh, and I can I can list those if possible uh, later on if you have a, a space to do that sure. on your site. Yeah, I can um, do that. Yeah. There's a couple of those resources that are free resources around like menu plans that are easy to follow and easy tips from the Registered Dietitians Association that we could work with. Um, getting regular sleep, and again, this is a hard one for moms. My Layla mm-hmm. was up all night last, so it was a totally. <laughs> it was a very, uh, it was a tough night, right? And so, so getting a, re- a good rest and getting to bed early. And I think sometimes what we do is we delay going to sleep because after the kids go down, we're like, oh, we have some free time, and we end up staying up pretty late um, because it's so nice to be able to have your own time for yourself. But then it cuts into some of the valuable sleep time that might help you restore some of your energy. Um, and sleep is such an important thing because it, it's the time in which we um, we heal. It's the time that our immune system works. It's the time that our body gets restored from all of the work that you've done all day. And so getting a good rest between seven to eight hours, if you can, of uninterrupted sleep is, uninterrupted is, is, a, is a funny word to me right now, but, <laughs> yeah. but, um, but if you can do that, that's really important. So going to bed earlier will probably increase the chance that that might happen. And then I always talk about mental health as well as part of this, mm-hmm. so physical health in terms of your diet, exercise, and sleep, but keeping keeping track of your mental health. And it's been found that if you are able to have a social network, if you're able to connect to other people, that really helps get through the tough days. Um, and mental health is just as important as your physical health um, and greatly influences how you are and your health overall. And it affects your blood pressure. It affects your heart health. Um, and so focusing on that and exercise helps with your mental health. And sleep helps with your mental health as well. Um, but specifically reaching out and getting help if you need it is a, a really important thing. And you don't necessarily need to see your doctor to talk to somebody for help or, or see somebody for extra support if you're feeling like you might need it. Um, there's a lot of good resources that, again, I can share um, that are available. Yeah, that sounds great. You can send those to me and we'll put those in the show notes for sure so that listeners can access those. Another question. I am going to be traveling south this winter. How do I know what special immunizations I might need? And are they essential or just recommended? Yeah, this is a great question. I think um, it really depends on where you're going because there's different patterns of diseases that go through different countries. The most common area of things that we see, especially if you're going south into tropical areas, um, hepatitis A and B is a, is a good vaccine to consider if you've never had that. Um, hep B is a vaccine that, depending on where you grew up, you may have had it at birth. If you grew up in a country that hep B is very common, you would have given been given it at birth generally. Or um, in high school in Canada, you get it in grade eight. And so you may already be covered for that. And hep B is, um, is a common thing in, in tropical areas. So that's a good one to get covered for. And hep A is transmitted through food and water. And so especially in tropical areas, that can be a common issue that comes up. And so it's good to get vaccinated for that as well. Um, In other areas, tropical areas of the world, typhoid, which is also a food and waterborne illness. um, So you can get it through contaminated food or water. It's a a good one to get. So typhoid, uh, you can get that one. You need to update every seven years. Um, There is a newish vaccine for cholera or or like traveler's diarrhea. 
it's not as good as other vaccines in that its coverage isn't 100%, but it gives you about 50% protection. So if you are worried, if you're prone to this, um, to getting ill, that is available as well. Um, and then other areas of the world, there's some essential vaccinations um, that you might need, like yellow fever. But the one thing you can do is I, what I do with my patients is, one, if you're going somewhere which is quite remote, potentially, or you're going to more non-urban areas where there might be higher levels of certain illnesses, especially things like malaria, um, is to actually go to a travel clinic. There's travel clinics um, throughout the province and every in many cities, and some people will do it by distance as well online. And they can check and make sure, and they'll look at where you're going. They'll they'll do a check to see what's common right now at this time of year, and then they'll make sure that you're covered for whatever you need. And when you're traveling separate from vaccines, I always recommend um, consideration of maybe taking some antibiotics with you because if you do get ill while you're away, uh, it's helpful to have that on board. When you're traveling with little ones, it's good to make sure you have enough Advil or Tylenol to take with you um, if they get a fever or they're unwell, because looking for that when at that moment when they get sick, that's not, that's not easy when you're away. That's great advice too. Thank you. Next question is about the flu shot. So how important is it for adults? And I'm sure as a doctor, I can probably predict what you're going to say, but just devil's advocate. I know we hear some people arguing, oh, it's just all big pharma and they're just trying to, you know, get us all to get vaccinated, but it doesn't really help. So what's your medical opinion on that? So, yeah, I, I, this is a, I think the flu shot, flu shot is very important and, and why it's highlighted. And I, I hear what people are saying that there's a concern around pharma and, and I, I'm very cautious around recommending anything, especially if there is a pharma influence, but the the flu is can be devastating and we don't always realize how significant it can be. So in Canada, we get about 12,000 admissions to hospital every year due to flu. And there's 3,000 deaths every year in Canada related to the flu. So it's not insignificant, it's actually quite significant. And we think about the populations that are most affected by the flu are people over 65, people who have chronic diseases like cancer or heart disease, diabetes, and young children. And those are the ones that are most at risk. So the question comes up for for a lot of my patients and and friends and colleagues, where what about just like an average healthy adult? Why should they get the flu shot? And it's really because you are protecting people around Mm you. Because you can carry the flu and you may not be affected yourself, but you can carry it to somebody who's vulnerable. And the flu shot, this year actually is quite good, but in, it is sort of, we predict what the flu shot will cover based on past year's strains. And so we look at what's happened in the last year, they, they figure out what strains are most common, and then they'll formulate the flu um, shot based on that. And sometimes it's a great match to this, the circulating strain, the current one, or and sometimes it's not as good. But even on the years that it's not as good, the flu shot still gives you some protection. The, ca- the key piece of the flu shot that I always talk about is that it takes about two weeks for it to kick in. And so a lot of people will ask me and say, you know, I got sick right after I got the flu shot. And that's a common thing that people hear. And it's probably because you might have been infected with something else. The flu shot is not an active virus that you're getting, so it can't actually give you the flu. It's an inactivated part of the protein of the shell of the, of the flu uh, virus and so it triggers an immune response in your body to be able to fight it off if you do get exposed. So it won't give you the flu. And so if you do get sick afterwards, you might get a little bit of immune, like a vaccine response where you feel a bit unwell the first day after getting it. 
but if you have a runny nose or you get sick after that, it's probably not from the flu itself. But I said, you think it's really important yes, to get it. Yes, no, sounds <laughs> if, good. I've got mine. Don't worry. Yeah. So we received a few questions kind of on a theme of women's reproductive, the women's reproductive system. So the first one I'm going to ask is, are menstrual cups safe? Yeah, so menstrual cups are a great option for people to use. Um, they, uh, There's a number of different brands that are available. The main thing that I always suggest is make sure that you're cleaning them regularly after use. And they have different um, soaps and things that come with it, but just make sure that it's cleaned properly after each time you use it. They And also the only caution that I use with menstrual cups are not to use it if you have an intrauterine device or an IUD. So if you have the Marina or a copper IUD, or Jadis, which are all IUDs, the string, the menstrual cup, when you're pulling it out, it can cause a bit of suction and actually pull the, pull the IUD out. So that's the time that we, I suggest you, you shouldn't be using a menstrual cup if you have one of those for birth control. But other than that, um, it's quite a safe option. One reader or listener asked about endometrial ablation, the pros and cons. But first, you're going to have to tell us, because I know I didn't know, what is endometrial ablation? And then what are the pros and cons of it? Yes, that's a, that's a good question. And it's uh, not often discussed, but it's becoming a little bit more common. And so when people have very significant, heavy menstrual periods, and so they have heavy periods, it can be painful, and it can actually lead to situations where they lose so much blood that they end up having anemia, and they need to take supplementation to kind of make up for the blood loss. This is an option that's available that can be used as an alternative to surgery. Um, to like actually removing the the uterus, um, and basically, it's endometrial ablation is a procedure that surgically destroys, so it almost ablates or just takes away the lining of the uterus. And by doing so, it reduces menstrual flow, and for some people, it actually stops your periods completely. It's not done. Um, it's it, it is a surgical procedure, but it's considered a, a somewhat minor procedure in that there's no cuts that are done, so there's no incisions that are needed for ablation. And what your doctor would do is that they would first evaluate, see if you're a good candidate for it by doing ultrasounds, seeing um, if you need to have this. And then they would put a small tool through the uterus, through the cervix into the uterus. And then they can, there's a couple of different ways that they can do it. And they can either basically take away the lining of the uterus using extreme cold or heat or radio frequency that basically then causes the lining to get thinner and thinner and thinner and shed or basically destroys the lining of the uterus, which what we usually shed every month. So mm -hmm. it works for people who have unusually heavy periods. So especially if you're, if you notice that you're soaking a pad or a tampon every couple of hours, if you have bleeding that goes on for more than like a week at a time, which some people do suffer through, or if you have anemia, it is actually a good option for you. Before, um, any questions about that before I... Uh, no, no, that's good. Um, before before you go to that stage of surgery, we often will try to do more conservative management. So if you do suffer from really heavy, painful periods, we will generally try medication first or an IUD that has a little bit of progesterone medication in it called a Mirena, and that can actually thin the lining out as well. Um, but if those conservative measures do not work, then ablation can be an option that can work. We don't do it for people who are postmenopausal or if you have an anatomical, some women have different shaped uteruses and that can be figured out through 
um, an ultrasound or if you have a history of cancer of the uterus or any infection of the uterus, then we don't do this procedure. Um, but generally, it's, it can be a very good option for people. Okay. Well, I was happy to get that question because I am interested to learn new things all the time. So thank you for explaining that. No, it's not, it's not a common, you have to go somewhere very specific for it. So not all centers offer it, but many do. Okay. Now I'm going to ask, well, it's not really personal, but it kind of is. So you wrote a really interesting piece for the Globe and Mail a while back about your struggle with fertility. And you do now have a beautiful, beautiful baby daughter, Layla. Um, But you mentioned that you learned a lot that impacted your practice. For example, no longer sugarcoating what you tell women about the issue of age and fertility. And I thought the point you made there was really interesting. So what do you now say to patients about this? Yeah, so I think in my practice before my partner and my husband and I went through fertility issues. We, I do a lot of women's health. And so I was seeing a lot of women um, who were trying to get pregnant. Um, and before we went through it ourselves, I would sugarcoat things a little bit and I'm like, Oh, it's okay. You can wait. And it's such a hard conversation to have because we work so hard to, to establish ourselves, have our career, um, go to school. We have all these other commitments. And, and so we delay childbearing. Um, and that's a, a common thing that we see. And I would never want to be somebody who would um, infringe upon somebody's right to do that. And so I wouldn't necessarily be very, I would discuss fertility with my patients, but I wouldn't discuss so much the age. And I would probably sugarcoat it to say, you know, this is something that you can have, this can happen. I, I know a lot of patients who, who get pregnant later in life, but after going through it and after meeting a lot of people who will go through fertility and learning more about it, and it's become an area of interest for me um, because it is such a hard thing to go through and people really struggle with this, is to see that age really does make an impact on, on fertility. Um, it's one of the only factors that we know very clearly does. And so now I have very frank, open discussions with my patients about it. And I say, you know, if, so I happened to see somebody yesterday in my office and I said, you know, um, and she has a Marina and she has an IUD and, and she was, she's 35. And I said, are you thinking of having kids in the future? Is that something? And I maybe wouldn't ask that as openly. Um, but now I make it a discussion because I think if it's part of somebody's plan in their life, it's important to know that age can have an impact. And so um, now I really talk about it very openly because I know that it can make such an impact. Even though I did know that before, I think going through it ourselves and actually seeing that um, really influenced me to be more honest and open about it. And it's not an easy discussion to have, um, but it is just sort of in planning out your life. If that's something that you're interested in pursuing and, and having kids on your own, then that's something to to really consider. And so now we talk about it very openly. I set up um, Patients will tell me, well, I have the pill right now. Um, we're thinking of having kids in the next couple of years. What do you think? And so we'll actually like set up timelines around because sometimes if somebody's on the pill or they have the IOD um, with the hormone in it, it can take some time for their own ovulation process to return to normal. So we'll talk a little bit more openly about, okay, and we, we plan a bit more deliberately around, okay, it might take about six months to, to return to your regular pattern. So why don't would you would you want to consider coming off the pill at this time if your plan is to get pregnant in this time frame? So it's just a lot more detailed, uh, the discussions I have, and a lot more honest. Um, and I'd have to say, like, the discussions I've had with my patients, even though I've always, prior to, I was cautious to say, have been really uh, open and people have been very um, 
grateful to actually have the conversations because it's in the back of their mind and they want to talk about it. But it's it's sort of a scary discussion to have because it's it's in the news a lot now too, right? Fertility and and a lot of people are coming out with their stories, and so people people are thinking about it. So I do think it's important to have that discussion. Oh, for sure. And I think it's great with your experience now that you kind of can can speak to that too, which I'm sure patients appreciate. Yeah, it's made a huge impact in how I how I approach my patients, um, who are especially who are going through fertility. So we'll set up little reminders. I having gone through it, and we we took four years and, and several cycles in IVF to to get pregnant, um, and it's such a hard process to go through. Uh, and it can be very isolating and um, you feel very alone when you go through it. And so um, what I do now is I'm able to sort of give a little bit more support, I think, um, and, and give guidance around like this is this is what you can ask your friends for, for support, because often people don't know what to say to their friends when they're trying to conceive or mm-hmm. trying to avoid fertility. This is where um, how to set some boundaries around protecting yourself in situations like when you go out for dinner and people are looking at you because you're not having wine. Um, So this is what you might be able to sort of guide those discussions. So you're not put in an awkward position because you're at home injecting yourself every night with hormone. um, And you can't be, and and you're just not able to go out or you're not able to, and it's okay to say no to things like you, you still feel joy for your friends who, who are getting pregnant around you, but that's really hard. And so it's okay to say, to step away from some things like baby showers and other things. Um, and so it's really a lot, I, I spend a lot more time counseling around these sorts of things and normalizing that it's okay to to take time for yourself. It's okay to reach out. It's okay to protect yourself and, and create a circle of support for yourself that really are going to be your, your team as you go through this. Okay. So another listener has a question more towards the end of the reproductive years now. So okay. she as I am in early stages of menopause, what can be done about vaginal dryness? That's a great question. And I think um, this is one of the things that, uh, unfortunately, as we go through menopause, our estrogen levels reduce quite significantly. And one of the main symptoms, that early symptoms that we see of menopause is vaginal dryness. So even before you go through menopause, because of hormonal fluctuations, you can get something called vaginal atrophy which is thinning of the tissue, less discharge. Um, and so what you can do for that is a few things. So when you go through menopause, you can, um, the first thing I always talk about is actually having sex. And so that's something that seems counterintuitive to when you're dry, you don't feel like having sex. But if you can use lubrication and you are sexually active on your own or with a partner, it actually builds, it brings blood flow to the area, helps lubricate the area and helps with dryness as well. That may not be very easy if you have very significant dryness because dryness itself can trigger pain and that might make it difficult to have sex. But I have an interesting, I do um, in one of my sexual health clinics that I was doing, I saw, I recently saw a patient who was 78 and she came in um, and she was lovely and she, we sat down together and we we're chatting and uh, she's giving me permission to talk about this because I find it so fascinating <laughs> and I was doing an exam and I looked at her vagina and I was doing an exam. I was doing um, an infection check for her because uh, she was recently sexually active with a new partner. And her vagina was like a 25-year-old vagina. And I said, what, <laughs> are you using something? Like you must be on estrogen or something for this because estrogen is a common treatment that we can replace for people who have vaginal dryness. And she's like, no, I just have a lot of sex. <laughs> and 
it's very interesting because it's very true that it adds lubrication. It helps with your pelvic floor muscles. It actually can be helpful. So if you're able to, um, again, on your own or with a partner, those things can be helpful. Medically, what we can do for you, the, um, there's some non-medical, op- non-prescribed options that you can use. There's lubrication that you can buy over the counter. So silicone-based or water-based lube can be really helpful to kind of get through. Like if it's uncomfortable, that can help with dryness. Um, there's a product called Replens that is sort of similar to um, your own natural pH and you can buy that over the counter and you put it you insert it twice a week and that might help with some dryness as well and then medically what we can give you a prescription um, there's topical hormonal treatment that we can use it's very low dose you can actually use it um, in anybody um, even with a history of if there's a breast cancer history or otherwise we can use it but it's a conversation to have with your doctor but estrogen is basically replacing topically so you can put cream twice a week in the area and it actually helps with the dryness as well. So there's a few things that we can do um, for this, but it can be uncomfortable. So it's not an easy fix, but it's one that we have solutions for. Thank you for those thoughts. So the last medical question I want to ask you is what do you think is the biggest mistake that women make at the doctor's office? So um, I think that there's a lot of Sometimes there's some um, sensitive, there's areas that are difficult to talk about. So sensitive issues uh, and, and women, men, anybody coming in, your doctor's office hopefully is a, a safe space for you. And I think the areas that people tend not to ask questions about are anything to do with sex. Like sex is the tough one. It's often, we call it like the doorknob question where people have come in about something. And I'm always wondering why they're in because it's something very benign that they've come in with. And then as they're leaving, it comes out <laughs> and, they touch the doorknob, and they're about to leave and they look at me and they're like, actually, the reason I came in was, and it's either erectile dysfunction for men or something to do with sex or something sensitive. And that's where I'm always, I wish that it came up earlier because then we're at the end of the visit and it's hard to necessarily address everything. I find anything to do with sex can be, and any sensitive issues, um, anything around like uh, addictions issues or drug and alcohol use can be difficult to bring up, but it can't, it's a really important thing to talk to your doctor about because we do actually, so we have, really great medication for alcohol um, use disorder. We have good counseling resources. We have support. It's not an easy thing to discuss, and it takes a lot of a lot of courage to discuss that with your doctor. But if you can, it can be a space that can be helpful. Um, anything to do with mental health can be difficult to bring up because regardless of how much we talk about mental health and the impact and how common it is, it's still highly stigmatized. Um, domestic violence is a big one that uh, I try to, I ask my patients about um, at least once every couple of years to check in if they're safe at home. But I think that's an important thing that your family doctor may be able to guide some supports and create a safety plan. Um, so it's really, really important. These are all really sensitive things. And it is important to have a trusting relationship with your doctor to be able to do this. And I realize that that's not always the case, unfortunately. Um but it is, these are issues that generally people don't ask. So anything that really scares us is hard to bring up, right? So, sure. um, but generally if it's scaring you, maybe it is something that we can help reassure you about as well. So people will bring up some medical issue of like, there's blood in my stool and they don't bring it up because it's scary or they want to ignore it. And those are also like medically, those are issues that we can actually help you with. And if we figure things out earlier, there's more we can do than if we leave it until it becomes a real 
a really big issue. Okay. So be open, be honest about your concerns and, and don't be, don't be afraid to share them with your doctor. And I'm sure at this point you've heard it all. You've seen it all. I can't imagine that you're judging anybody coming in with any question. (laughs) No, I think that's the biggest piece is that it should be a non-judgmental. And again, it's hard. depends on your relationship with your doctor, but your doctor should not be judging you. And if your doctor is judging you, that's not a great fit. And that's not where to you. And that means that that's not a safe space. And I say that also knowing that it's hard to find a family doctor. And so this is, people often are with people because with doctors that they may not be totally comfortable with because they don't have a choice mm-hmm. otherwise. But, um, but hopefully it can be a safe space for yes, you. Yes, I'm lucky. I love my doctor. So that's... Uh... That's great okay. for me. Um, yeah. Now, just to wrap things up, uh, going away from the medical side of things, probably, I always ask my guests if they have a, a This Mom Loves or a favorite thing, something that you would recommend to listeners. Is there something that you would recommend? Uh, yeah, I think um, so because my area is women's health, and this is something that I ask I ask every person that comes in when their last period is, uh, it's helpful to have a period app. It's okay. my favorite thing if they have it helps me track things. Um, I, you know, I don't, ha- I have so many favorite things. I love, um, I recently read Atul Gawande's Being Mortal. Uh, it's a beautiful book. Uh, he's a, a doctor in the States and he writes beautifully and he writes for the New York Times and has beautiful articles, but he wrote, he writes these books and it's about the end of life. And it's an area that I find um, where he's talking about how to live a good life and how to have a good death. And that's a, it's a really beautifully written book. Um, and I, I find I, I have it in my office and I, I lend it out to patients because it's, it's a really interesting um, look into how um, life doesn't end after a certain point. We need to take care of people as, as we age and, um, they have a beautiful example of people uh, in long-term care facilities having pets and birds flying around and like really creating a life force within the long-term care facility, which can often be a dreary setting for people. And that's not reflective of the life that they li- they've lived. And so um, that's just a small snippet of that, mm-hmm. of that book, but it's a really beautiful book and it, and it, it has a lot of great reflection um, in how you're living now and and uh, end of life sort of story. Oh, that's excellent. I'm always always looking for book recommendations, so I will have to check that one out. Ooh. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Sheila Wajay Singha for being here with us, sharing all of your medical expertise. I will have links in the show notes for this episode, so you can find Dr. Sheila on uh, social media if you're interested in following her. I will also include some of the resources that she mentioned throughout our conversation, some links and things that you might be interested in checking out. So that will be at thismomloves.ca slash podcasts, and you can click on episode 16 for all of the information. Thanks again for being with me today. Today, Dr. Sheila. Thank you for having me. And we have reached the end of episode 16 of This Mom Loves. I would like to thank my editor, Lucas Wojcicki, for always doing such a great job with the, with the audio that I give him. And thanks to all of you for being here and listening. As I mentioned, all the information from today's show will be in the show notes on my website at thismomloves.ca slash podcasts and it again is episode 16 i'll share a link to the book that i recommended as well as that list of the 41 books that i loved from last year and i will also have all of the information um, about and from dr sheila j singha who was here to talk all about women's health and thanks again to her until next time i hope you all have a very great week